Welcome back to State of Emergency. This is Peter Schorsch. I'm here with Jared Moskowitz, former Director of Emergency Management. As we all know, we are under a state of emergency, and so we thought it would be uh, timely and appropriate to bring back um, this podcast so that we can talk about the devastation wrought by Hurricane Ian, the recovery, and the way forward. Um, so uh, although I don't like these circumstances, Jared, how are you? Good to hear from you again. Good to talk to you. Good to be back on the pod. Hey, Peter. Thanks for uh, for doing this. Uh, I think it's good we can get some information out. It's good that your family uh, is okay and that you were okay. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of families um, today in Florida that have lost loved ones and have lost everything. So, you know, that's uh, these these events you know, that Ian will go on the list of Andrew and Katrina and Sandy and Michael. Uh, and so this is, this is a significant event. It's going to change Southwest Florida forever. I'm going to handle today's pod uh, kind of like an interview because we're actually fortunate um, to have you uh, here to talk about some of this stuff. We're going to have uh, State Senator Jeff Brandis join us in a little bit. I do have to get a little housekeeping out of the way. It has been a while um, since we did the pod. Since that time, Jared uh, ran, was appointed to the Broward County Commission. We, we talked about that on one of the last episodes, but then you, you filed to run for Ted Deutsch's seat. Uh, he uh, decided not to run again, and uh, you overwhelmingly won that primary. You ran a hell of a campaign. You're in a heavily Democratic seat, so you're on your way to Congress. Uh, before we talk about Ian, any reflections on the campaign trail, how that was uh, for you, how running for Congress was? Well, look, you know, I'll, I'll keep it curtailed to Ian. I mean, you're, I'm was the only uh, emergency management director from a state who ran for Congress, the only person who ran a COVID operation who ran for Congress. Uh, and, you know, now with Ian, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to bring you know, 15 years of emergency management experience to Congress so that we can do the things that are necessary for this country, like, you know, making sure we're doing mitigation measures and hardening and getting ready for climate change and, you know, national catastrophic funds and helping out propping up the insurance industry. And so, you know, look, it was a surreal kind of event to run for Congress. Um, it was definitely you know, upsetting and sad and uh, made me angry many times that my dad, unfortunately, missed it, um, you know, but uh, it. Uh, I'm going to go to Congress and I'm going to represent District 23 the same way I did when I was in the House in Tallahassee, the same way I did when I was the emergency management director. Well, I'm happy. Um, I'm happy you won. I, I will cut you in on a little secret, a secret you probably don't know, but it makes sense. Um, we talked about you behind your back. Um, some of the uh, some of your consultants um, that I'm friends with, and uh, we I, I know we just kind of let the podcast die. But part of it was also I didn't want to put you in a bad position by making not that you would have put yourself in one, but I, you know, there was um, it was probably not great uh, in a Democratic primary to be pictured over and over again with Ron DeSantis and. You know, it would it would have been there would have been cha uh, places where I, I may have said things that would have put you, the candidate, in a difficult position. And I just didn't want to get into that one way or the other. I didn't want to play 
uh, journalist with a person uh, that's my friend. And so um, after like the third or fourth time that we posted a story and mentioned like you and Governor DeSantis, uh, I was just like, you know what, why don't we just hold off until after uh, he's elected and everything like that. So I kind of made that decision without really talking to you, but you're also busy on the campaign trail uh, and you probably didn't even like care or notice, but that's part of the reason why we've been gone. So I'm, I'm glad you're back. Well, uh, thank you. It's good to be, it's good to be back. You know, I'll tell you, look, uh, my opponent spent $700,000, uh, attacking me for my job as emergency management director, uh, for, for a governor from the opposite party. And how did the voters respond? I won the election by 41 points. And so, uh, I think people understand why I took the job. I think people were happy. Someone from Broward County uh, uh, was the emergency management director. Uh, and I think that they were happy that I was there during COVID. Um, um, I think um, let's, let's get into Ian. I, I, the first question I want to ask you is, all right, we are, I guess, like um, kind of like D-Day plus 48 hours at this point uh, from when it really started to impact the state. What is going on right now in the emergency operations center? Give us a sense of what that looks like, the decisions that are being made, conversations that are being had. Well, look, it's total chaos, but it's organized chaos, right? You have 500 people running around a building that, you know, 150 people should be in. Uh, you know, you have uh, Jimmy Patronus's office, you know, helping run Swiftwater Rescues. Uh, you have, you know, the Coast Guard uh, assisting. You have the National Guard assisting. You know, rescues right now in the first 72 hours is what they're focused on uh, while they're then pushing logistics. So you got a major logistics operation going on. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment uh, is moving into that area uh, whether and supplies. So whether that's water or meals or base camps because there's no place for all of these folks coming into work to stay or it's the power companies coming in with tens of thousands of trucks. Uh, it's gonna be generators, it's gonna be pumps, it's gonna be light towers. Uh, and then you're gonna have heavy equipment uh, coming into the area to make sure all the roads are clear, which is called push. You push the debris out of the roadway to get the roads clear. You need to do that so emergency vehicles can get into there. And then there's gonna be you know, some things that all of a sudden happen that you didn't expect. A hospital you have to evacuate, a nursing home you have to evacuate, you activate the ambulance contract that you have, and all of a sudden you can push 150 ambulances to a hospital or to a nursing home. And so all of that is going on. The counties are putting in their mission requests into Web EOC. I heard the Kevin Guthrie, who's the director now, who was the deputy when I was there, say that they had 1,500 mission requests uh, basically in the first day of the response. I'm willing to bet that there are over 2,500 mission requests now. And then they're filling those mission requests with their logistical vendors uh, as those are coming in. You got FEMA in the room. They're there. You have the Army Corps of Engineers here. You know, the Army Corps of Engineers can be used for power and, and blue roof. They can be used for debris removal. You know, they're the ones who come in and do these catastrophic events, uh, Katrina, uh, Andrew, uh, like stuff. So that's what's going on there. And then obviously you have the whole governor's office. Uh, you know, they move basically from downtown into the EOC you have secretaries there from other departments. Every state agency is represented in the EOC. Private industry is in the EOC. All of that is going on in a coordinated effort. 
That is uh, that is beyond fascinating. Okay, joining us now is uh, State Senator Jeff Brandis, who we invited on. He's a he's a little bit of um, of of Cassandra here, the figure from Greek mythology who kept uh, making predictions. She was the one who said, "Hey, don't bring that big horse uh, into Troy. Uh, it's going to be bad." And nobody would listen to Cassandra, and we know how that story worked out. Senator Brandis has been sounding the alarm on property insurance. Really, it's kind of a a, a Byzantine, very dry issue. It, it it it's not very sexy. It doesn't splash well on newspapers. And but I know he's been talking about it literally for years. Um, and he's been warning that what happened this week was going to happen. So, um, Senator Brandis, how bad do you feel this morning? being so right? Well, I think this what we're going to find out that this is going to be a 40 to $60 billion storm and that you're probably going to have four to six carriers who go pay out their claims and then turn in their keys. Uh, and I think the question we have to ask is, is, is Florida's homegrown industry up to the task of dealing with, uh, of dealing with these types of larger storms now? I mean, listen, we're in a world where category four storms are becoming kind of the, the, the norm. Uh, at least it seems like that in Florida. And so, you know, I'm not worried about the 100-year loss of Florida anymore. I'm worried about the 10 to 20-year loss and what that looks like when you start having multiple billion-dollar storms back-to-back. I mean, even Hurricane Michael was probably a 20 to $30 billion storm. So if you just kind of look at where Michael hit versus where where uh, Ian has hit, then you kind of do the math on it and realize that given Florida's current laws and its current environment, uh, we're talking about, you know, about probably a 40 to $60 billion storm. And that's going to have devastating impacts, not only on the Florida insurance market, but on the reinsurance market, which is what Florida so dependent upon. I saw something yesterday, though, um, and this may just be 24 hours, uh, hopefully just like with Apple stock. The reinsurance stocks uh, did not suffer significant losses yesterday on the stock market. Is that connected at all, or is that just they haven't had time to make an assessment yet? Yeah, I, th- I think for the most part, you're going to see this play out over years. It doesn't take, it's not a, it's not a daily thing. It's a, it, you know, these, these insurance claims are paid out over, you know, multiple years. And so I don't think it's going to have an immediate hit on the, the, the larger reinsurance stocks, but I think it is going to have an immediate hit on citizens, uh, which is probably going to have to do an assessment at, you know, not to this year, but next year. Uh, definitely the cat fund, uh, which you know I think is going to get significantly impaired by this storm uh, because of all of the private insurers that will be drawing upon it. The you know the, the two billion dollars we put in in the legislature uh, during special session is gone. But I think you know the real question is how does the governor deal with this going forward? I think if I'm advising the governor, I am telling him right now to put together an insurance task force uh, and and you know getting getting ready for a special session in November and, and having the best ideas. So I would be, you know, I would be out there, you know, sending the helicopter to pick up the, the experts in the property insurance world to lock them in a room to tell them we've got to figure this out because Florida's property insurance world is basically going to start cutting off the middle class here if we stay on the current trajectory. What does that look like then? I mean, uh... All right, so I think a sixth uh, insurer went insolvent this week, correct? Yes, Isn't that that's correct, yes. Yeah, yeah FedNet went under this week. Okay, so, like, 
like do in policies just stop getting written getting written or do they just all go to citizens or they all, like, yeah they all they all start going to citizens right citizens is still going to write and this is the problem that the legislature has put itself in uh if you go back to even you know senator simmons back in 2013 had a bill that said let's make citizens policies actually sound the challenge because they didn't do that we've done that tried to do that multiple years but because they haven't done that citizens now finds itself almost as a predatory competitor because their pricing is 50% below the market, right? And so they're basically losing money on all these policies that they're bringing in. They brought in 60,000 policies just last month. Uh, you know, they've doubled in size in the last two years. And, you know, and, and, and likely they will be over 2 million policies, like well over 2 million policies, larger than they've ever been in their history uh, before whatever fix the, the, the legislature and the governor puts come up with uh, goes into place. And, and that means they'll be 30% of the Florida market and essentially have no cash to pay claims. So, they, they, you know, if they are significantly impaired with this storm and they're trying to reload, um, they're, they're going to be down to, you know, a few, you know, maybe three, $3 billion uh, of cash, maybe two. Um, and, and now they're forced to reload. And yet you've also put on more, more and more risk. So even today with just a million policies, citizens has, you know, maybe access to $13 billion of cash, but then $400 billion of potential liability. We could be doubling that in the next year, year and a half. Uh, I guess you uh, don't uh, mind getting out of the legislature to, right now. I mean, in part of like, <laughs> no, I, one, of the, like I, one of the, one of the jokes I, I hate to make, but uh, I ran into Charlie Crist literally while I was at Publix in Northeast St. Petersburg. Um, and, I'm like, if I'm Ron DeSantis, I just hand the keys over at this point. I mean, it, you know, it's just like, it, I, I get the challenge of wanting to be a leader during challenging times. Uh, but it's also like, this is a, I mean, this is one of those Herculean moments that, you know, it, it's not, it, who wants to deal with this? Who wants to, you know, who wants to put up with this headache for the next three, four well, years? It, it's going to happen. Somebody's going to do it. And, and I think DeSantis has to, has to focus on fixing the property insurance world in Florida. Like that has to now, that has quickly risen to the number one, at least, you know, Florida based policy that we've got to deal with. Uh, it, you know, yes, you want to run for president of the United States. I get that. I get that. That's really important for you and personally wonderful. But like, what does Florida need? Florida needs to fix the property insurance world because it is the Achilles heel of the Florida real estate market. And you're going to shut off the middle class from getting into the property insurance if you don't fix this. And because people are gonna be paying more in property insurance than they are on their mortgage, right? The ripple effects of this storm are going to be massive in the reinsurance world, in the companies that fail within a year or two from, from here, um, and, and, and then just the lack of investors wanting to come into this marketplace. So until you radically fix the market, which is, we know what this, I, I believe we know what the solutions are. But we, we have to be have the political courage, and it's going to take DeSantis basically demanding that these things happen in order to move forward. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, I, I, you know, there's, there's, first of all, you know, look, leaders get defined by these moments, right? I mean, you know, no one thought a year ago the governor would be dealing with a collapsed building in Surfside in Dade County, the, the, the worst uh, collapse in American history, other than maybe the Oklahoma City bombing. 
um, you know, in 9-11. Uh, and so, you know, th these moments define you uh, as a leader and they shape you. I, I know that I'm not the same person I am now than before the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school shooting in my own, in my backyard. I don't I don't take the emergency management job without that event in my neighborhood. So these these moments define you as a leader. Uh, you know, as far as the insurance market, I mean, listen, the problem is huge. Uh, and while the state of Florida needs to do everything they, they can, and, and Jeff is definitely the expert on that, I actually think that there's a role for the federal government nationally as well. You know, they've tried to do a national catastrophic fund for a long period of time, uh, and we've, they've not been able to get that done. This is going to become a national problem, not just here in Florida. Louisiana had two Cat 4 storms in two years. We've now had a Cat 5 and a Cat 4 in four years. And so it isn't just Florida. California is facing major fires. Uh, New Mexico has a major fire. Kentucky had a major event with a flood. Th these things are going to be coming everywhere. We might be the tip of the spear because Florida is a peninsula. But at the end of the day, uh, I think this is a national issue. Yeah, I think my challenge with that is we have a national catastrophic fund in the NFIP, at least for flood. And we're $22 billion in the hole because once insurance goes to its politicians, they set place prices politically, you know, and so the politicians are setting the pricing, not the mathematicians. And what happens then is, is, you know, now you've got some single mom with two kids in Wisconsin paying for a wealthy homeowner in, in the keys, right? Like that to me, real, I really struggle with that. And, and frankly, we rate has to reflect risk. And the simple truth is Florida is a riskier state. And, and so we have to be able to, we, you know, we have to be able to get our laws appropriate for the state of Florida. Florida can no longer be the most hurricane prone state and the most litigious state in the country. Like those two things cannot coexist and have lower property insurance rates. Like they, they, they just don't work. So listen, I don't, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, Jeff, but I think that you can amortize some of that risk nationally as well. I mean, look, to be honest, California is one major earthquake away from becoming the riskiest state to live in. And so with events like this, um, you know, it, you're one event away, one major event away from being the riskiest state. And so there are issues in Florida that need to be addressed. But, you know, one of the issues I've seen in the insurance market is when an event like this happens, there is a major fight between what was the first to hit? Was it the water or was it the wind? And that was a big fight in the panhandle after Mexico. So yes, I understand NFIP, but I saw a lot of fighting and saying, well, it wasn't the flood that hit that house first. It was the wind. The wind is, came first. It knocked the roof off or it knocked the window out. And that's how the water damaged. So we're going to deny the claim because it's not flood damage. Uh, and so, no, I agree. Listen, I think we have to resolve those types of issues. I, I think, but but I think until you get the litigation environment in Florida out of control, uh, you know, we are eight percent of total U.S. property claims, but we are eighty percent of the litigation in the country. Like that cannot continue. And so we're going to have to do some really radical things that that have historically can be considered radical that frankly aren't that radical for other states, you know. We've got to, for example, the legislature should say, listen, you have one year post-hurricane to file a claim. 
the tail risk on these hurricanes up until two years ago was three years, right? We've limited it to two years. We may need to bring it down to one just to get the property insurance rates under control. How does that happen? Just real quick for people that don't understand that, or like, I don't like, so in three years I can make a claim on Peter. uh, Yeah. It used to be three years up until two years ago. It was three years to make a claim on, on hurricanes and five years to make a claim on all other perils. So, you know, your daughter could be in eighth grade when the hailstorm went through and you don't have to file the claim until she's a freshman in college. I don't understand. I mean, why did, why is that allowed to happen? I mean, I, the, I just the, I don't the, understand. the legislature allowed it to happen. The legislature said you have five years post event um, for a non cat event to file a claim. It was insane. Now the legislature has peeled that back. So it's three and three, but it, but sorry, it's, it's uh, yeah, three and three, but it may need to go to like, you know, one and three or one and two. Uh, and these are things that are going to be very politically difficult to do. It's got to make citizens' property insurance rates actuarially sound. Again, extremely difficult to pull off because right now you have a million policyholders and half of them are paying 50% less than the private market. I talked to a a reporter yesterday who told me, hey, listen, my company, my insurance company failed. And I went from paying uh, $6,000 a year to to $3,800 a year by going into citizens. Well, you shouldn't get a discount. When, when your insurance company fails and you go into the private market that's sub, I mean, into the into the government run insurer that's subsidized. It, it, the, but this is where the legislature now finds itself and citizens is now exploding in growth and is going to only get worse after this. And, and so the, the legislature has to do some really difficult things. So if I'm advising the governor, I'm saying, governor, listen, on Monday, you should name a task force of, prop, of, of property insurance experts and you should say you have 30 days to come up with a plan of how we're going to move forward in the state on property insurance. It is the only way to save, uh, frankly, the middle class in Florida and on, on, in, in, in the world of in the world of insurance and what they're going to be paying in premiums, because rates are going to go up another 20, 30 percent next year on top of the 100 percent growth we've seen over the last two or three years. Jared, well, I mean, you've worked with. Governor DeSantis, and I know that you don't always agree with everything he does. What is what is his appetite here for some of the changes that Senator Brandis is is suggesting? Well, listen, I mean, right now, right, and I know neither of you have, you know, have had my position and been in the fog of war. I mean, he, he's not thinking about that at the moment. I mean, he just he just can't. Well, Senator Brandis did serve in the army, so. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, you know, listen, I totally agree. He's not thinking about it, but he should. Yeah, he, but he but should. He can't. He, but he can't right now, Jeff. He can't. Well, no, the reason. He, the, the reason. He, the reason. Hold on. The reason he can't is he's got nine thousand residents displaced. He's got uh, hospitals that are being evacuated, nursing homes that totally, are being totally evacuated. Agree. Totally agree. Right? Totally. So, so in in the coming days, when that initial response is done and we're and we're done saving lives then yes, he should be thinking about it. You tap Jeanette Nunez and you say, put this together and bring me back your ideas. It's a delegation issue. So to me, this is what the market needs. If you listen, you wait till the legislature gets back in session in November, you're gonna get some half-baked plan put together by three or four people um, without the right the right knowledge and the, the depth of knowledge necessary to make this thing work. And I don't trust OIR to do it, and I don't trust the 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 
the staff of the Senate and the House to put it together. Like you need industry leaders coming together at a task force banner to give you the best ideas to save this market. And you got to do it now because November's right around the corner. And so I, I totally get, yeah, he's trying to get power back on and people rescued. But at the same time, he has the entire government of the state. He can tap his lieutenant governor and say, go chair this, go put it together and, and let's get started. Right. That that is just it's a delegation issue, but it's got to happen because if it doesn't, that you're going to find us in the middle of, you know, November, December and, and, you know, going into legislative session in March with with a half baked list of ideas that don't do enough to say what, we're, what we need, to, what, what needs to happen right now is the perfect time to show real leadership and put this thing together. He doesn't have to do it himself. Just delegate it down and get it done. All right, Senator, we appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm sure that we will be seeing your name in uh, countless think pieces over the next uh, month uh, on what Florida needs to do. Um, and so we um, we appreciate you coming on today. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Peter. Bye. Bye, Jared. All right, Jared. Um, Going back to the EOC, um, is that and because I, I I never was really in there uh, during like the uh, the fog of wartime, as you've said. What is that like? Is that what Kevin Guthrie is in charge of right now? Is he does he run all of that, or does like do people report to different areas? Like, how does that all work logistically and like workflow wise? Yeah, it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting sort of setup, actually. So Florida is unique. Florida, because we have what I would say is the most robust disaster management, emergency management department in the country. Um, you know, we have statutes that support that. So there's something called Chapter 252 in Florida statutes that when the governor declares a state of emergency, the director of emergency management becomes what's called the state coordinating officers. Uh, and the state coordinating officer becomes the highest ranking official underneath the governor in the state. All of the secretaries running all of their departments actually report to the state coordinating officer in addition to the governor. The state coordinating officer, Kevin Guthrie in this instance, has the ability to spend money uh, without approval from the governor's office or from any other state agency or from the legislature. Uh, and it's set up that way for speed. You have to get bureaucracy out of the way in order to respond quickly. So every secretary is running their department. Every department is responding. ACA is doing their thing. Health is doing their thing. Uh, the CFO's office, who's the fire marshal, he's doing his thing. But Kevin Guthrie is actually in charge of the entire response. They all report to him. Uh, and he can direct state agencies. So he can direct every single secretary right now because that secretary reports to him uh, in the organizational triangle. And that's different uh, uh, at when there's a state of emergency declared, and it's different in Florida than any other state. That's fascinating. I did not know that it was like that. Um, <clears throat> how do you, uh, I, I know you're not going to speak ill will, but um, how would you rate Kevin Guthrie's performance over the last week? Well, look, Ke Kevin is a pro. Right. You're not talking of this. This appointment of Kevin Guthrie wasn't a political appointment. It, it wasn't a donor. Right. Kevin Guthrie is a 30 year, you know, professional and expert in emergency management. Uh, he did this at the county level. 
both as an administrator and as an emergency manager at the county level. He was the chief of staff for the agency during the entire Hurricane Michael uh, experience and response. Uh, he, you know, when he was at Pasco County, he was in charge of the sinkhole issue that developed there. Uh, he did all of COVID with me, the 18 months I was there, and then he took over afterwards. Uh, he was my recommendation to the governor uh, to take the job. Uh, and so, you know, Kevin Guthrie right now is working 20 hours a day, sleeping four hours back at it, 20 hours a day, sleeping four hours back at it. He's in that sort of battle rhythm. Uh, and so, you know, listen, there's a lot of things I learned from Kevin. There's a lot of things he learned from me. Uh, one of the things that I know he learned from me and I've seen it is you order that equipment before landfall. We know what they're going to need. You might not know where it needs to go, but you order everything. And, you know, in disaster management, you know, you have to spend money and you have to spend it early in order to quicken the response. And I know I, I've seen Kevin doing it because I've been out there. That's interesting. Like, so what does that look like for people? Uh, I, I, we saw so much about like the pre-positioning into, into uh, Tampa. I think that that was basically the hub. Um, how does that, how does that work? I and mean, what is, I mean, what does that, what does that mean? Like we, I think in a lot of ways, we're paying attention to like, you know, we're paying attention to the cone of certainty or cone of uncertainty, and we're not necessarily listening to uh, some of the numbers kind of drone on, you know, like I remember I, a number I saw was we had 179 aircraft uh, was in one of the governor's press uh, releases. And I'm like, why 179? Why doesn't somebody just get another airplane and make it 180? That just was such a random number. Um, out of nowhere. So what does it look like in terms of the pre-positioning before we talk about the response, like how, what, what was in Tampa? What was in uh, Southwest Florida? Oh, listen, uh, between federal assets, Coast Guard equipment, Pentagon equipment, FEMA equipment, other federal agencies, Army Corps of Engineers, generators from them, uh, and then Kevin, I mean, if there wasn't $500 million worth of equipment ready to come in the area, then I would be surprised. And then you're talking about the power companies with tens of thousands of vehicles. I mean, I'm willing to bet that it, as you and I talk right now, the state has probably spent somewhere in the nature of three to $400 million already uh, responding to this event. Th these things are expensive because of the amount of supplies, water, food, that you need and then the amount of heavy equipment, base camps, you know, your, people are going to set up base camps. That base camp can house 500 people. It'll have shower facilities. It'll have dining facilities. It'll have laundry facilities because there's no hotels to stay in the area. Uh, and so, you know, these are massive, massive uh, efforts, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Kevin Guthrie has done this before. We did it during COVID. Uh, we spent, oh, God, over $3 billion, I think, responding to COVID. Uh, and so, uh, you know, all of that is in motion. It's constantly in motion. There will not be a time for them to take a breath and sit back at any moment over the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm staying at a hotel in middle Pinellas County, uh, kind of like in the business area of uh, anybody from the area, like where Raymond James is headquartered. And so there's a lot of like Holiday Inn Express-like um hotels and so as a, you sound, coming, you, i knew you i knew you sounded smarter this morning i knew there was a reason <laughs> that you sounded smarter um and it's funny because like all of the parking lots are filled up with 
um, you know, the dump truck, not the dump trucks, you know, the contractors, all the contracts. And so I went to a bar last night and listen, it was a long day for a lot of people. Um, And I was watching the game um, working on sunburn late into the night. And it was clear was a, the bar that I was at was a post 16, 18 hour lineman hangout place. Like, Hey, we just drove down here. We just busted our ass. We're going to have a beer or two. Uh, you could you, you just had this. And the bartenders were not, they weren't ready for it. They didn't know that they were going to be back open. And then you had, you know, 50, 60, uh, you know, bro linemen just like re- looking to get a few moments of relief after, I'm sure, a, just a blistering day. There's a lot of people right now with power off. And as, you know, as amazing as FPNL, as amazing as Duke are doing, why isn't my and my power is back on but like everybody wants to know why is my power not back on at the granular level why isn't somebody's power back on so listen i can't speak for the power companies i can just tell you what what i think is standard procedure they're going to start with critical they're going to start with the ones that are the easiest to fix then they're and they're going to go to critical critical infrastructure so as you know fpl has you know a smart grid so they're able in some areas where the power goes on to just flip a switch, go to a different line if there's no line damage, and turn the power back on. So if they can do it electronically, that's the ease. Those are the easiest people to turn back on. Then obviously they're flying their drones to figure out what lines are down, where there are trees. They're analyzing and sending their crews out to figure out what what boxes are damaged and and boards are damaged that need to be replaced. They're looking to see if they have any mains down. Uh, or substations down, uh, and then they're going to go to critical infrastructure. If there's a nursing home that has no power, they're going to go try to fix that area that has that nursing home. If there's a hospital that has no power, they're going to try to go uh, and fix that area with the hospital. If there's a city or county government building uh, that has no power, they're going to try to go to, to that area to get that power back on, et cetera, et cetera. So they're going to start with critical infrastructure before they move into residential. That's what's happening, Peter. You didn't answer. Why isn't my power back? No, um, I uh, make up because because you've not called your friends at FPL yet. I, this is a, <laughs> I I purposely don't during like I I I, I got to tell you like the sense of community that you get during these moments. Like I forgot my wallet for five minutes um, yesterday. I just went up to the Seven Eleven and it was open, and I I I just was going to get like a cup of coffee, and I don't even drink coffee. And I forgot my wallet and I, 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 I guess I said it out loud or something. And this guy, this like clearly hard scrabble guy was like, Hey man, if you need something, I'll be happy to, whatever you want, go get it. And I'm like, no, no, it's not like that. I need to go get my wallet. Um, it, it, there was just moments of community at the little like public's like deli center that I was like camped out yesterday. And I imagine there are just, I just imagine that there were, a million instances, 10 million, 20 million instances yesterday, the last 48 hours of people being their better selves. And that's, uh, it's, 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 it's kind of magical that way. Um, all right. So well, look, this, the- this is, this is, this is the time for people to come together. Uh, you know, there'll be time for politics. There'll be time for Monday morning, morning quarterbacking, but, but right now uh, this is, this is the time uh, to come together. There'll be, there'll be after action reviews. There'll be lessons learned. Things that didn't work will get fixed. Happens after every disaster. Every disaster is different. Irma was different than Michael. Michael's different than Ian. Um, but now's the time for people to come together 
to give these people, to, to help the people in need and to give them hope that, you know, we're going to do everything we can to restore their lives. What does the next, all right, so the media, let's talk about this for a second. The media, there's always the fear, you know, what happens when these, when the media leaves and, you know, they move on to the next story. That definitely happened with Hurricane That's Michael. That's what happened. Uh, that, hap that happened in Hurricane Michael. I blasted the press for doing that. They, they walked out on us, quite frankly, in the panhandle, turned the page, and it hurt uh, our response. It hurt the fundraising uh, to raise money. Uh, it hurt our ability to, to get stuff out of the federal government uh, because when this is on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, every single day you have the nation's attention uh and so you know luckily you know myself and and the governor's administration was very forceful we were able to we were able to use our weight quite frankly uh and uh, elected officials in florida to get the things we needed expedited funding 90 percent heard of first time we ever used Yes, but it's fine. Florida get $250 million fast into the panhandle. But if you go to the panhandle, right, the panhandle has been built back better uh, and it's doing well because we had a really uh, response uh, and recovery. And this area is going to need the same thing. Um, I, uh, I, I, I want to talk about kind of the lives lost here. Um, is it a miracle in a way that we, I think right now as we're, as we're reporting this podcast, um, it's 21 deaths so far. I, that's horrible, and it, it, it's 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 every life lost is a lot is a loss that we shouldn't have to suffer. But in a way, in a state this big, with so many people living on the water, are we are we kind of fortunate that you know that the numbers are not worse, that they're not Katrina level um, disaster at this point? Well, look, uh, you know, it's it's early. I don't want to make any pronostications one way or another. I expect that number to climb, whether it climbs drastically or not. It's unclear. They're going house to house in places like Fort Myers Beach and Sanibel on these islands, you know, to, to, to get people out. You know, as of yesterday, they did over like 800 rescues. Uh, and so we're rescuing people. That is a good sign, by the way, that we are rescuing people. Um, and so, you know, look, we lost almost 50 people in Michael. So if it was that number, it would not surprise me. It will not approach Katrina. You know, it's a difference between a levee breaking and a flash flood hits a neighborhood. Um, because there's, there was no warning for that. None, zero. Uh, and it hit an extremely poor area, uh, of, of Louisiana, people who didn't have resources to leave. Uh, that's not this area on the average. Uh, and so uh, I'm hoping we don't see some sort of crazy number, um, you know, but look, there are things that I saw yesterday that were devastating, surprising, and then there were things that I saw that were not surprising based on the damage from the water. I will tell you the inland damage, while from a Category 4 storm, was not as bad as I thought it could have been, but the the damage from the folks that live on the islands or live literally right on the water, that, that is catastrophic. It, clearly the surge damage coupled with strong winds. I mean, the surge damage is just so tremendous. It literally looks like a bomb exploded in these neighborhoods 
They're complete rebuilds. 80, 90% of the buildings will have to come down in these areas uh, and the towns will have to be rebuilt, just like Mexico Beach in the Panhandle, but, but over a much larger area in this instance. I, you know, am I allowed to ask, like, maybe we shouldn't be rebuilding some of these places? Like, uh, you know, Jared, like, I live on the water in St. Petersburg, and our house is newer and is up high. And so I was, like, really only worried about the first floor if the, you know, the worst case scenario happened, which would still have been devastating, don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of these old, like, you know, Florida is as many old like 1950s, 1960s houses. I always say they look like the houses in Godfather 2 at Hyman Roths. They're these, you know, and they're everywhere. They're, you know, it was when people were moving down from up north, you could get a, a nice house for five, $6,000. And and these are places that were like near me, they were dredged. They are not, you know, natural places. Um, they, are, they, were, they were dredged so that people could live on the water. Um, and I just wonder, should people be living in these places? Should we, and should we be, should, there has to be some sort of moral hazard here about, you know, rebuilding for people who, you know, that didn't have insurance or something like that. Isn't there some part of that that has to be discussed? So let me, let me tell you why I say no for, for really two reasons. One is a lot of the stuff you're talking about, Peter, which is built before the Hurricane Andrew building code, and the building codes that have been strengthened since then, those th they've been there for 50, 60 years, 70 years, as you're, as you're talking about. When we build back, they're going to be built back with stronger code to withstand these sort of events. So okay. the answer is you, you can build in these areas uh, with current technology to withstand these events to where, yeah, you might have damage, but uh, the structure can survive. Um, so that's that's number one. Num number two is, I mean, should people be building in California? I mean, they only have one of the nation's largest fault lines. Uh, they have fires there every three weeks, it seems. New Mexico just had a huge fire. Kentucky had a huge flood. Should we be building in Tornado Alley? <clears throat> should we build, be building in the West at all, considering they're in one of the world's, uh, the nation's worst droughts, if you're watching the Colorado River? I mean, we could ask this all day long, and by the time you and I are finished, there'll be no place to live, uh, you know, but Montana. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day, it's about mitigation. We got to mitigate the risks by building stronger, and we can do that. Um, I, I guess, like as I see some of these houses, where it, in, like in our neighborhood, it floods at two thirty in the afternoon. Um, when it's sunny out, you know, because, and, and it wasn't like that five or 10 years ago. And I just don't know places like St. Well, Petersburg. It's, well, Peter, well Peter, look, that's climate change. I, I mean, listen, we can debate to the cows come home on why it is happening, right? Is it natural? Is it a cycle? Did humans cause it? Do humans add to it? People can debate that to the cows come home. I think the science is pretty clear. We're having an effect clearly, but climate change exists. Sea level is rising. Anybody who knows that as ice melts, it creates water. So as that ice melts in the north and in the south, uh, at, you know, in, the, uh, in, the, in, in Antarctica, in Greenland, in the Arctic Circle, as that ice melts, we're going to uh, have 
the, the, the oceans rise and the water table in Florida is going to rise. We're gonna have seawater intrusion eventually into our drinking water. We're gonna need seawall protection. And so at the end of the day, this is going to be a major federal mission, not just to protect Florida, it's gonna be Mississippi, it's gonna be Louisiana, it's going to be Texas, it's gonna be up and down the East Coast. What, you don't think that when the water rises here, the people in Manhattan aren't going to see it? Of course they are. It's going to be everywhere. It, it, it really should be at this moment, the nation's largest jobs program to mitigate against these effects. If we believe that we can't stop them, if we believe we can lessen them, uh, one of the ways we can lessen them in addition to lessening the damage humans are doing, we can also lessen the effects by doing mitigation, by building these infrastructure projects uh, to lessen the effects. But but this is coming, Peter. You know, just like you said in T in Tampa and the city of Miami, I remember it never it never the streets were never flooded when it rained. Now it's flooded every time it rains. All right, last question for you. Um... I just posted up an op-ed and, um, you know, full disclosure, I, I got some advice from you, some suggestions on it. You know, now is the time for Ron DeSantis to become um, the recovery governor. Um, let's put the the campaign aside, if we can, because I think I think this, this kind of event kind of locks in uh, an election at this point. Like, I just, unless, unless he is George... Uh, w with Katrina, um, and I don't think that he would. I don't think that he will make the same mistakes. He certainly hasn't in the first forty-eight hours. I, I don't see the 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 um, election changing much because of this event. In fact, it may uh, there may be a rally around Ron DeSantis moment here. Um, what does this mean for Ron DeSantis going forward past November, et cetera? Well, look, you know, just like he was defined a lot in Surfside, he'll be defined with Ian. This is going to define uh, define him. He's going to see things he never thought he would see. He's going to meet people he didn't want to meet uh, because, he, you know, you don't want to meet people who have lost loved ones, who have lost everything. Um, you know, so th this is going to change everybody who deals with it. It's going to change the first responders. It's going to change the firefighters, the police officers. Again, you're not the same person when you go through these events. And so, listen, he should call up Haley Barber. He should call up Chris Christie. These are two men, uh, one in Katrina, one in Sandy, who I think uh, took the bull by the horns and really led the recovery efforts for their states. Whether you agree with them politically or not, I, I, I think if you're really looking on how Mississippi came back after Katrina and how New Jersey came back after Sandy, I gotta be honest, those guys became the recovery governor. That's what Ron DeSantis needs to do for Southwest Florida. All right. Um, let's talk again soon. I think we'll. Uh, I, I think when we're in a state of emergency. Well, oh, you know, by the way, I, I should have this shouldn't have said that was the last question. There's a great video on your Twitter account of uh, of you taking an aerial view. How did that aerial view? I, I don't know. Remember, was it Fort Myers Beach? Uh, yeah, it was, for, it was about. Yeah, there were people from Broward County that were going over to survey the damage. They asked me if I wanted to go to give them kind of my opinion. Uh, so I went with them. I'm actually headed back to the region today uh, to talk to the, the town manager there to kind of give him my my assessment of, of what he's dealing with because of, you know, my experience with Mexico Beach when you see a town basically just wiped off the map. 
Uh, so, you know, listen, I'm, I'm more than happy to help. I'm not in the response business anymore, uh, but I'm more than happy to tell people lessons learned and, you know, what they should be doing. Those folks in Fort Myers Beach or Sanibel, they've never dealt with anything like this. This is a case of the first impression. So, you know, going to people who have been through it and done it and asking them what they should be doing next. That's what everyone is doing right now uh, in Lee County and Charlotte County and Sarasota County and Manatee County, the counties that were, you know, took the brunt of the end. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. It's good to hear from you. Uh, I guess we'll talk about what you see over there in the coming days. Um, let's see if we can pot again early next week. You, Peter. Right. I love potting with you. It's my favorite. <laughs> All right, Jared Moskowitz, this is Peter Schorsch. We are in a state of emergency. This is the State of Emergency podcast. Thank you very much for listening to Phil Ammon for helping produce, Jay Caruso for putting it all together.